Welcome to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy. The Mental Cast is a podcast focused on the topics and people helping drive us forward in leadership, learning, and our personal journeys. Just a reminder, you can send in your questions using the hashtag AskDanMickle, A-S-K-D-A-N-M-I-C-K-L-E, or sending an email to info at danmickle.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Mental Cast. Here is the host of The Mental Cast, Dan Mickle. Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Mental Cast with Dan Mickle. And today I have a very special guest, Jen Fry of Jen Fry Talks and about 18 million other things. Um, <laughs> So Jen, why don't you say hi and give us a little bit background. Um, let's go really back background, you know, growing up and then we'll, we'll go into the journey of, of where you started today. So g- give me the life of little Jen. The life of little Jen, which you know is I was all over the place. Um, so I was born in Canada, raised in Arizona. Um, I played three sports uh, back when playing, you know, three sports in high school was a cool thing to do. And also during that time, I played, I think, one or two club sports and worked. Like, I look back and I'm like, how did I have time to do all of that stuff and still graduate? Um, so I was always into sports. Um, my, I spent two years at junior college. And during that time, I remember in the fall, I'd play. And in the spring, we'd have spring practice. And I would also do little kids soccer refereeing, worked at a bookstore, and worked for the Boys and Girls Club. So I was, I've always been doing a million things at all time. I don't think there's ever been a time where I haven't been. And so um, went to junior college, played for two years, then transferred to um, a D2 school in Alabama. Um, back in that time in 98, 99, this whole recruiting process, I me- remember my coach would like bring out a big old envelope of um, letters. And like, we all sit there and wait to see what schools gave us the letters. And I mean, my mom didn't graduate high school. Um, my dad's not in the picture so really I never even thought about going to college like it was never something that we talked about never like hey start looking at colleges this is the process never had a clue about it and so I really just started going to junior college just because I got out of high school early so I would take two junior college classes and be out of high school at like 9 30 in the morning there was no well thought out plan at all and so I was able to go into junior college I think when I started I had like 30 credits before it was like the cool thing to do. It just, it was happenstance for me. And I also um, thought about being like a DJ, like a radio DJ. So I actually had my own little radio show Sundays from like one to four, where I think the most of the time I'd play like Zappa Roger, uh, Michael Jackson, Prince. (laughs) That's all I played for four hours straight. And so from that point, I wanted to transfer mid semester and really only had like two or three options. Um, went and visited schools in December and just made the decision. Like I've realized in my life, whenever I've had big decisions, I've made them pretty quickly. Like I'm the person that will sit there and research a 299 thing for hours. But like when it's been big decisions, I've made them really quickly. And so I think that's been like one of the catalysts of my life is like, if you're going to do it, do it quick. Don't sit there and stew on big decisions because if you do, you'll find ways to say no, not to do it. So I ended up choosing the school in Alabama, transferred, had a good two years there, and then really had no clue what I wanted to do, had no clue of like what a bachelor's meant or a master's meant. And so my college coach, CJ, was like, hey, do you want to coach a club team? Sure. 
I didn't even like kids, but I was like, okay, I'll coach. It's extra money. And after the first practice, the head coach, I was the assistant, the head coach ends up quitting. So I now was in charge of a team. I had like the 15 fours, right? I was in charge of a team where I never even thought I wanted to coach. And that's what started me loving coaching. And so from that point, I became a graduate assistant, got my master's, still not understanding what it meant to be 22 and have a master's. I just, it was like, hey, you want to come in GA, you'll get paid 125 bucks a month and you'll get your master's in, in housing. And so whenever I hear people that want, are looking for graduate assistantships and they're always looking at big schools, I'm like, why? Big schools, you'll do one thing. If you go to a small school, you're going to have your hand in a million things and you'll probably get housing. You'll have just a bunch more opportunities. So graduated. Um, went back to Alabama, lived there for a year, and then wanted to keep coaching. So I literally, after that, coached for another 13 to 14 years. I, every, you know, one to two years, just kept finding different opportunities. And um, one of them, I was at Norfolk State, historically black school. Um, I was a head coach. I was fine. I enjoyed it, loved it. And then um, I was doing a camp in Philadelphia, a HP camp. And one of my mentors gave me a call and said, hey, there's this head coach at a pack back then the pack 10. Um, they're looking for an assistant. I think you'd be perfect. And I'm like, pack 10, I'm a little HBCU coach. Why would I go to the pack 10? And he was like, well, just talk to him. It might be a good fit. So we had a conversation. This was on a Wednesday and the conversation went well. And the next day was a Thursday. And this was about 10 days before preseason started. So it was like July, like 27th, something like that, 28th. And so, um, that Thursday, I was, he, you know, I talked to the coach on Wednesday. He was talking about flying me up and all this. And so on Thursday, I was actually going to fly back to, to Norfolk where I was coaching. And I just called them and I said, hey, if you're really interested in me, then you need to fly me up now. I, I was pretty ballsy, but I was like, you need to fly me up now. If not, I'm not going to do it. It's too close to preseason. And so one thing is like, don't make requirements unless you're prepared to fulfill them. And so I didn't think anything of it. Guess what popped up in my email an hour later? A plane ticket. So I was at the airport, already checked into my plane ticket to go to Norfolk, and I have this plane ticket to Washington. And I'm sitting in like the, um, you know, in the hallway, I was like that one girl that was like sitting there bawling. You know, we've always seen like that one person bawling, and I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh. And so I call my captain, and my captain, Nicole, I mean, she was 19, 20, and I was like, here's the situation. And she was like, Fry, you be dumbass not to take it. She's like, this is the Pac-10, like you need to take it. So I fly out, I get on a different flight, fly out to Washington, and I only had um, t-shirt, running shorts, and a backpack. So that's how I did this interview. I met with the president of the school, the AD, I met with all these people in t-shirts and running shorts, because I had no other clothing. And then um, I, it, I, so I interviewed Friday, Saturday I flew home, and he said, I need to have an answer by Sunday at 5 p.m. And so, you know, talk to my friends. And it was just kind of like, you're not going to get this opportunity again. You're, you're not. And so I just decided to take it. And I had to call my boss, the AD, to tell him, you know, six days before preseason, I'm leaving to a Pac-10 school at that. Like, no one would ever thought that. And it was like the craziest quick decision of my life. And it happened. And I was like moved over there in like 10 days. It happened so fast that people would call me to have lunch and I'd be like, yeah, I've already moved across the country. And so that was like such a crazy thing because we're there. The season didn't turn out well. The whole staff got fired. And um, luckily enough, one of the assistants I worked with, Lampo, was great. And he said, hey, 
if you're going to take, cause we were getting our salaries paid out to like September. And he was like, Hey, if you're going to take a job, make sure a, it pays more or take a volunteer job where they're going to give you a good reference and you'll have, you'll, you'll make it deep into the tournament. So I just email all the top 25 coaches, all of them, just send them emails. And again, like stuff that's happened to me has happened really fast. So I send all these emails and I'm at a Dallas Mavericks game with my friend, Amanda. And this was right after refing Lone Star. And I get this call. And I'm like, okay, Illinois number, who is that? So I go, I mean, like, now I'm that person in the big bathroom stall talking on the phone. And so it's, it's Kevin Hamley at Illinois. He's like, hey, I loved your, your resume. I've heard about you. You know, we talk. You know, I think you'd be a great fit. Why don't you talk to my assistant, uh, Jen Oldenburg? So I'm like, okay, I think it's like going to be a few days. Go back to my seat. I get another call. Go back into the bathroom. And it's Jen. We have a great conversation. Go back to my seat. All of a sudden, Hambly calls me, hey, you want to be a volunteer? Okay. Why not? So I accept it. We end up, you know, playing for the national championship. And it was just, I mean, I would, I would have never expected it. You know, it's kind of, um, I don't know. If, have you seen the MJ documentary? No, I, I purposely have waited and I'm going to wait until all the hype is done. Oh, Lord, you're that person. Well, so there's <laughs> this one episode where they're talking about when they had the last season, when they went like 70 and 10 or whatever, 72 and 10. Right. And they talk about how they looked at the schedule and they said, hey, we could go undefeated for the next three months. You know, they said that. Well, literally, we looked at our schedule for the tournament and like how, you know, the bracket was. And we're like, yo, we could get to the national championship. Like, I mean, we looked at who we played, who we do our beat. And it was like, yo, we have a real possibility of this. So we ended up going to national championship. Um, and then from that point, it was only volunteer jobs. So I left in February, went to Elon, was there for four or five years. And then it was that point where I'd been there about three years. And started getting more involved in diversity and inclusion. And since this is a podcast, I'm a black female, in case you don't know me, what I look like, I'm a black female. And so um, Dan is a white male, just in case we need to clear the air. <laughs> um, your first time tuning in. And so um, I just started getting more involved. Like I said, I grew up in Arizona, majority minority city, literally five minutes from the Mexican border. When I go visit my mom, if she needs medicine or glasses, I go to Mexico and get it. Like that's how close we are. And so I started getting more involved seeing what I wasn't ever paying attention to because I was never the only one on a team. And I had talked to my friends about potentially leaving volleyball. I mean, I have this 15 year career. I was pretty well known. Like I, I enjoyed going, you know, seeing people. I knew people in the community, but I was deciding to leave it, but I didn't know what it was. And so I was doing my homework. You know, one of my good friends, she said, if you're going to look at leaving, you need to start preparing your resume. You can't just jump. You have to start getting on committees, getting to know people, doing your work, that type of stuff. And so um, it was in the spring of 2015 where I was like, it's, it's time to go. I didn't know what that meant, but I just knew it was time to go. Um, I had done a focus group with, uh, on the experiences of black, black faculty, staff, and students, and we decided to do another one on black athletes. And just hearing this stuff, I'm like, yeah, it's time to go. And so um, I just didn't know what that looked like. You know, I, I kind of was like, okay, well, maybe I can do a student, I can be a substitute teacher. Like, I, I just had no clue. And so I had given myself, I said, okay, the first week of November is when you have to tell them. If you don't tell them then, then you're fully in. You can't be half in, half out. You have to either be fully in or fully out. And I was the recruiting coordinator. So it was like, you have to make that decision. So the first week in November, I said, this is it. We had our first meeting. It was like on the Monday. And um, back then my head coach would always say like some, something like, okay, anything else for the good of the order or just something. And I just finally blurted it out. So I'm resigning at the end of the season. We all kind of looked at each other like, did I just say that? And 
from that point, uh, season came, I resigned. I had no clue what I was going to do at all. Um, I knew I wanted to work in diversity and inclusion, but I look back and I'm like, man, you really had no clue just because I didn't know what that even entailed. And so I worked for a few months in the diversity center um, at Elon and then traveled the world some more and then got a job at Duke um, working in their scholarships. So we had 10 scholarships, equal about 450 students. And I was responsible for about six of them, the programming. And um, at that point was starting to, it was blogging a lot, but it was like, how can I make this transition that people actually want to bring me in to speak? And so do you want me to keep going, Dan, or? Yeah, no, because this is, this is a perfect timeline. Because, yeah, keep going. Okay. So from that point, I, like, I, I didn't know what it was I wanted to do, but I also knew like when I was blogging about stuff, I became the person that coaches would contact like, Hey, and this was like right in the kneeling time. Like, Hey, how do we deal with um, athletes kneeling? How do I talk to in my, my administration? What do I talk to my athletes about? Like realizing that people didn't have this information or if there were diversity inclusion workshops, they were super superficial that people were black, you know, black and people and people of color were coming out more frustrated because things weren't being talked about. And white people were like, okay, that was great. And we're all like, but this is really superficial, like stuff isn't being talked about. And so I was kind of like, will people listen to what I have to say the way I have to say it? You know, that was kind of the thing is that will people listen to me with what I have to say the way I have to say it? And it turns out that people, athletes, coaches, administrations, we're really looking for a voice to talk about this stuff very openly and very like just digging deep and in depth and getting into the uncomfortable part. And people wanted that. They, it just wasn't a realization of like where to get that surface from. And so that's what I started doing it Duke when I was working with this job I was working on you know just anywhere I'd go and speak I'd, I'd record it just to, so just really would speak anywhere for free and and just doing a lot of research and reading and workshops and sessions on diversity inclusion um just um, just to meet more people in the space that I was in and to re realize like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to really make a big jump. And at this time I was also looking at PhD programs. I just finished my second master's and I was looking at PhD programs, and then in, uh, and so, you know, they were all like, Jen, you need to get your PhD. Like we love you here, but you, you need to get your PhD and keep doing what you want to do. And so they were a great push not like we just need you out here, but like you're, you're meant to do something big. You need to get the accolades to do it. So it was kind of at that point in, um, started doing what I'm doing. So one of the reasons I liked how just letting you go and go through that story is I'm, I'm visualizing and, and picturing everything. And 
I don't know. Did you feel like each step was setting you up for the next step? Like, it feels like that when you look at it, you know, retrospectively mm-hmm. and looking back, like the choice to Alabama and then leaving and mm-hmm. the Pac-10, like all scary moments. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I, I get all that, but do you feel like, do you feel like it was fate driving you to take these decisions? Or do you think that decisions you were making were driving the bigger picture? You know what I mean? Like, like, do you think these things happened because it was meant to happen? Or do you think that you were just subconsciously setting yourself up for this path and this road? I don't think I'm smart enough to set myself up subconsciously. <laughs> I think it was like thing that I'm really willing to take chances, but I take like, I'm a, I mean, Dan, you know me, I'm a pretty, free-flowing person I'm pretty wild but I also try and like make educated decisions if that like I don't make a decision that's just no reason and so I would sit there and say okay you know what I get to work for this type of person or in this conference not knowing like I would have never thought leaving Washington State would set me up to coach a national championship never I would have never thought that um, you know going to Duke would set me up on this path but like I've always tried to network and meet people and reach out and talk to them and just keep, I guess, in a way, preparing myself at all times. So there wasn't a time where I've been sitting, not doing anything. Like even in this time, I don't have class, but I'm working on a summer project. I'm like taking EDX class. I'm listening to webinars. Like I'm always, or I'll just like see someone online. I'm like, oh, that person looks interesting. Let me just reach out and chat with them. And I think a lot of times, you have to be willing to like keep putting yourself out there, keep talking to people. I mean, one part I left out was like um, in 2015, after I decided to leave, I thought I wanted to get into student development in athletics. And so I just asked, um, I can't remember who it was, but like for the whole list of student athlete development people in the CAA. And I just called every single person just to talk with them about their job. And um, one of them, we had an amazing like 30 minute conversation and a week after I got my job at Duke, she called me. She's like, hey, I have this job open. I think you'd be perfect for it. I'm like, well, I've already accepted this job. But just the fact that people don't understand, like, those conversations, people will tell you about jobs. People will be like, this would be a good fit for my company, for my organization, my school. And so I always would do that type of thing. Um, I reached out, you know, when I was looking at PhD programs, I reached out to Berkeley and spoke to the, the guy who's in charge of the master's program in, like, sports studies. And he, we had a great conversation. He's like, hey, here's four names you should contact. And I did and had great conversation. They've led me to one of them, Lisa connected me with the guy who I was um, present with. So like, I've always just been willing to reach out and email people to keep forging ahead. There's never been a time where I'm like, this is it. And I'm always like, Hey, how can I reach out to this person and talk? How can I reach out to this person and just keep having conversations? So how do you, how do you avoid the burnout of it all? Like, in my sense, and it's not, I don't think it's as big as a scope as you, you know, when I pivoted and said, you know, coaching's great, but I don't want to make it my life. I really like doing the mental stuff and went back for the sports psych masters and going and then you're back gonna be your PhD. Right. And all this, you know, everything going on. I'm, I'm finishing a second master's in learning technologies because I wanted to figure out how people learn to combine it with the sports psych and to move on. And with coaching, it was really easy to shut it off. You leave the gym or, you know, you don't watch it on TV, you flip through it. But with like what you do and what you speak about, how do you turn it off? Because I'd imagine just going to the grocery store could lead to 
a, a moment, and I'm sure it has, where you're just, you know, educating someone or discussing a situation with someone with diversity and and how do you know when to not get involved versus getting involved i guess is the question like oh, that's, that's such a good cause question because you, you feel like you always want to get involved right like it's it's what you do it's your passion but if we jumped in like if i if every time i walked by a little league baseball practice and saw something i was like oh man they're, they're killing that kid you know not physically obviously <laughs> yeah. But we would never get anything done. So at what point do you like know when to hold it back and like just kind of walk on by? You know, I think the difference is, is well, with you, I mean, like, yeah, you're like, man, this kid's being brutally, you know, mentally abused or whatever it is. But with me, like, like people, especially if it's like in person, people can get really hurt. Especially I feel like when, um, I think a lot of times people don't think of power dynamics. People don't think of power dynamics in coaching. People don't think of power dynamics in relationships, in supervision, Pe like in job. Like people just don't think of power dynamics. You know, we always hear the idea of like, my door is open. They can come and talk to me about anything. Mm, can they really? Because you hold their scholarship, their salary. Like, no, they can't. Or they have to come walking on eggshells. And so if it's stuff I see in, in person, like I just can't not say something. Like there, there's just no way because – I feel like I'm a, if I'm doing this work, I'm a role model. So I have to, like, if I see something going on in person, I have to say something. Like, I, I have to. There, there's no question about it. Um, you know, there was, um, I get this, uh, I'm on this listserv, and I started to notice that a lot of the webinar speakers were all white. And so after, like, may, okay, may, you know, I called a friend. I was like, okay, should I say something about this? How do you think they perceive it? You know, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, well, maybe, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt, they'll change it. And I get the newest email and there's like two more webinars and they're all white. And I'm like, I just have to say something. I like, do you, do you notice this? Because it's become very apparent. And so like, but then there are times where like on social media, there've been so many times where I've written out a comment and just delete and keep it moving. Like there've been so many times, you know what I mean? That like, it's like, nope, I'm not going to have that argument. I, I've typed out the, the comment, but I'm just going to delete it. Yeah, it's almost like a therapy, typing yeah. it out and then deleting because you know that in the minute you hit enter, it's going to be another hour and a half of your life, yes. day and a half of your life, arguing with someone that's just not going to get it or care to begin with. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I mean, I've also realized, like, I do, a, I'm entrenched in this work, and there are people that don't have a foundation. So, I'm already entrenched in this work, talking to someone that, has, that doesn't have a foundation. I have to do so much educating, and it's educating on stuff that people... A, think they have this huge grasp on, which in reality they don't, or B, what I'm telling them is going to make them super uncomfortable because they're going to have to critically think about stuff that they've never had to think about before. Like when I talk about definitions and I'm like, well, where'd you get your definition of racism at? And they're, you know, you can hear them typing up, well, Webster says this and this. I'm like, okay, well, when did this, because um, Webster, if you look down at the bottom, it says like when these definitions, or when this word started to be used in this way. And so, like, def Webster's definition on racism it started in 1902. And I'm like, well, what happened in 1902? What was going on? You know, segregation, lynching, Jim Crow. Do we want to use a definition from 1902? And then their next, you know, well, this definition is fact. I'm like, okay, we have Webster's and Oxford. They're going to have different definitions. So which one's fact then? And if we look back to the 1800s, who started writing these definitions? Four or five white men. And so when you have to keep pulling back the layers, people get really pissed because they think you're changing history. It's like, no, I'm just kind of telling you 
stuff that you have to start critically thinking about. And so I've realized that it's hard for people and it's really uncomfortable to critically think about stuff that they've never even thought about having to think about. And so it's like, what's, what's the point? Like, or people will be like, well, can you send me this and this? No, educate yourself. When you read the article, I'll gladly talk to you about it. But if you're not going to educate yourself on the first few steps, I'm not going to chat with you about it. it. It's pointless for me and way too much work. So in that sense, my, my dad, my dad watched the video that we did at convention mm -hmm. and he's just now kind of really getting into social media. And his first response to me was that you were completely not what he expected. Um, and, and I think it was, I, I think, and we've never even talked about it, but I think he was expecting more, I would say scholarly, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, because I think that's what he has in his mind as someone that's educated, mm -hmm. you know, taking race completely out of it, yeah. just educated, you know, the, the pressed skirt and the nice yeah. blouse, you know what I mean? Um, and he, and we were talking and he said, you know, like, what, what did I think that your goal was? And he thought, and his comment was, I, and he said, I think her goal is to change people's minds. And I said, you know, originally that's what I thought, but I pivoted from that. And the more I thought about you, I think you don't want to change people's mind. I just want to, I think you want to change the, the atmosphere or the scope or the bubble that everyone lives in so that you're not changing minds because it never comes into the mind. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that's two different skills. Like you can go in, you go into an, a situation um, where you know that there's, there's, you know, social tensions, whether it's sexism, racism, anything mm -hmm. versus kind of going in and changing the culture. The way you approach those two things are completely different. And at least I think, because you know, one of them is it's going to be combative. People are going to have their mm -hmm. quote unquote, their facts and their truths yeah. and their, you know, um, and the other one, you're actually trying to create the environment. Do you think, do you think those two aren't the same? Are they the same? Like, do they kind of go in hand in hand? And, and, and I guess what I'm saying is, if we take the kneeling, for instance, and I use that because it was such a polarizing mm -hmm. boom thing, you know, for our generation. Do you think it's worth trying to change the minds of the people that were against the kneeling or is it more about creating an environment where the kneeling isn't an issue? Oh, that's a really good question. One thing I never try, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind. Like that's impossible. And I think it's really interesting on social media when you'll present stuff and people, like I've realized that people are not used to debating or arguing, like they're not. And so people will just say, well, you know, I'm not gonna change your mind, so why talk about it? And I'm like, that shouldn't be your goal that you're changed, like that should never be the goal. Well, since I can't change your mind, I'm not going to talk about it. But like, to me, that is so pointless. I'm like, who's trying to change minds? We're just trying to have a discussion about that. And so I don't go into places trying to change mind. What I do go into places doing is trying to get people to think more critically, more critically about themselves, more critically about their culture, more critically about their interactions with people. Because if you, like, for instance, if you tell me to come in here and talk about implicit bias, how can I even really talk about it if you haven't even thought about yourself and your own biases? If you don't think you have biases, how can we talk about implicit bias? And so that's the thing is that I want to help people start critically thinking more about themselves, about power structures, about definitions, about classism, about all these different things that they never really thought about. 
And then you can start talking about implicit bias. You can start talking about unconscious bias. You can start talking about things more in depthly because they're starting to think, okay, well, you know, I grew up in an all white family, played on all white teams in an all white school in an all white town. And my parents always said, we treat everyone the same, but a person of color never walked through our door. So what does that mean? What does that mean with what they've taught me verbally and non-verbally? You know, what does it mean that there can be multiple truths? Because, you know, whenever you start talking about stuff and family structures, well, my parents were good people. And it's like, well, you can have multiple truths that your parents were good people that also did problematic things. And the more we start to reckon with multiple truths, the more we can start critically think about stuff. Because if we only think about things in good, bad binaries, it's really easy to say, well, this is a good person. They would never do it. So I don't think that they would say that or do that because they're a really good person. And so my goal is to just get people critically thinking more. Because if you're critically thinking more about self, then you're paying more attention to culture and can maybe see those shifts in culture because you're thinking about how your involvement is creating the culture. I think that is the most amazing point because that's what I've been struggling with. Not, not internally how I feel, but how do, you, how do you discuss and talk about it? And the multiple truths aspect is true because we have a million examples of people that have done great things, but may not have been great people. Mm -hmm. And how do you, how do you reconcile that? Um, I, I hate to use this example just cause, but, it, but it, everyone knows that it comes up is like R Kelly. Mm -hmm. You'll have people that are so like, as soon as a song comes on, I'm changing the channel. Mm -hmm. But I mean, let's be honest. There are people that made that their wedding song, their anniversary song. How do you reconcile? You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? And with Babe Ruth, you know, was a sports hero to everyone, but was abusive. Was you know, how do we separate the artist from the art? The, you know, the person from the actions, and and can we and should we? Like, I'm not saying I'm not saying like we should hold these people up and. R. Kelly should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and get the Nobel Prize, you know, for humanity. But does that mean that I shouldn't listen to the music? Because I don't, I don't buy into the argument. And it's a bullshit argument as far as I'm concerned about, well, if I listen to their music or I buy their album, it's helping propagate what they do. It, it's, it's helping um, feed their problems. Because so many people take a cut of everyone's money. I, I just I have a hard time reconciling that. But, but what's your advice on that? Or how do you talk about that? Because, <sighs> because I mean, let's be honest in, in, in any, anytime there's been a shift or any change in society, something, someone good probably had to do something bad to get that started. And, and how, how do we reconcile that? Man, that is so many complex questions. You know, the R. So R. Kelly was my favorite artist. Like I went to like four of his concerts. I had all his, his CDs. I loved R. R. Kelly, you know? And I think that's difficult because while we talk about R. Kelly as the person that was doing this awful stuff, I mean, let's be honest, rock and roll has a long history the Rolling Stones, I mean, Aerosmith, like, let's be honest, they've had 12, 13, 14 year olds in their buses. Like, like, let's be honest. And I think R. Kelly, like the pinnacle of everything he did, especially in the later days of like having kids like locked in the room, like all that stuff. But like all of these um, hair, was it hair bands? I can guarantee have long histories of dating young kids. I mean, like, I think a prime example of what you're talking about is Karl Malone. 
Carl Malone knows the mailman. He is like one of the, like the most respected basketball players, but he was like trash as a human. He got a 13 year old pregnant when he was at Louisiana tech and he wouldn't pay when he made to the NBA, he wouldn't pay the $200 a week for child support. When the kid, uh, Demetrius Bell, I think is, when he turned 17, Carmelo was like, it's already too late to have a relationship. Don't even worry about it. He had then a set of twins, which he didn't acknowledge to, like, I think the daughter, the daughter said maybe played at Louisiana Tech, and then she went to WNBA, and then he started acknowledging her. Um, in more recent times, Malone has developed a relationship with Bell, but, like, everyone holds him up in high regard, and he's done such trash stuff. And I think it's, the problem is, is that, these people, these celebrities, these athletes, we put them on such a pedestal so that they can do no wrong versus that these are very complex humans just as all of us. And so I think that that just has a complex thing like should you now buy R. Kelly stuff? I don't think so because you're still, you're, he's still making money off of it. But I think if you already have the stuff, you already got the CDs. Like you already got your Aerosmith. You have, all, I mean, there are so many people that have dated and done stuff with younger people. Not, I'm not at any way saying that it's, I'm approving of it, but like we have to look at the whole music, music in its whole in entirety what everyone's done. And so I think we just have to look at, we have to start looking at celebrities and all these people who make a lot of money as nuanced, complex individuals, not as on these people that we put on these pedestals that we have right now. And I think that's a huge complex um, mm -hmm. situation that we have in the sense of we, especially as kids, idolize a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. Posters on a wall and everything. But the minute they kind of get out of what we think they're known for or what they're for, then they should keep their mouth shut. And, and mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And that's obviously a big one with politics right now. You're just an actor, so keep your mouth shut. Well, you know, what's the difference than you talking about politics and someone that has money and fame talking about politics? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that we like putting the people up on the pedestal so we can watch them fall because it makes us feel more human. Mm. I, I agree with that. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? In the, in the sense of, you know what? I'm glad that person got arrested. Or I'm glad that person lost all their money because you know what? Now they're human just like me. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some, some sort of like, I wouldn't say joy or happiness, but I don't think it's as saddening as people tend to believe. You know what I mean? Um, and, and again, I think we, uh, more recent, I, the Kobe Bryant thing's tough, right? I mean, mm -hmm. people really are still struggling with that. And, and I think the problem is it's because they're a public figure. Cause I think all of us have things like that, that we struggle with. Mm -hmm. we, we have all done that stuff. And that for that brief moment of time could have been the only thing that someone knew us by, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I could have been at a party and told an inappropriate joke 20 years ago, but that might be the only impression that that person has of me. Mm -hmm. And it's just, how do we reconcile that? Like, like how do we, because, because you know what happens is we take these people, whether it's, it's, it's Kaepernick or it, it, it or it's anyone and it starts then to go away. It's like everyone wants to pivot and use that as getting away from the person into the, the broader picture. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it stopped being about what Kaepernick was doing and totally became about racism and respect for the military. And like, it just, and we do that on everything. It, it's almost like the person becomes the flashpoint because we just want to get to that bigger discussion to prove why we're right. I mean, I think the, the Kaepernick thing 
was completely about race, 150%. It, it can't be about anything else. And the reason I say that now is we see all these people of the reopened whatever state are predominantly white, have predominantly Trump flags, seen Confederate flags, that type of stuff. And we see a lot of people are like, you keep protesting, you're doing what's right. Look at you, you're doing, and then Kaepernick did that and he was blown up. And he was, and he kept saying, this is what I'm protesting for. But because he did it for this flag, that was the biggest issue. And like, again, there's this nuanced discussion about the flag that people don't want to admit to. It's like, okay, you're saying that the flag did this, this, and this, but we also have to acknowledge that there were black and brown people that were fighting for the flag and coming back to intense racism and segregation. Like we have to acknowledge the flag is different for different people. And I don't think that we acknowledge that that on a lot of things is that like you can have this one emblematic thing that has treated people differently and in, in very different ways. And, ha and we don't want to acknowledge that because if we acknowledge that the flag is pe treated people in very different ways, we have to then admit that Americans people treat people in different ways. And that's what we don't want to admit. So we're, we're coming up on the end of time and we could probably chat for eight hours. Absolutely. But that leads me to a great question that I didn't even think about asking, but th I think this is how we're going to end it. Okay. So do, is, is the solution to try and get everyone on the same page? Like, let's take the flag as an example. Okay. Is it to get everyone on the same page or is the solution to get a culture and an environment and a society where we can respect and acknowledge the fact that there's different views? I don't think that there can ever be a, a, a same page because no one's monolithic. So the pages will always be different in the book at all times. There's no one. But I think to get, you, can you get a culture of respect? And what were the other parts of it? Um, just acknowledgement, you know, respect and, and, and the, I guess, inclusion of multiple thoughts. I think that's a good part, but can you do that if we all are still looking at history very differently? Can we get, like, yes, we can have, I think the goal should be like, that everyone gets to think different, yes, but I think we also have to look at, are some of those thoughts gonna be um, hampering other people? So I, I don't even know if that can be a clue, a clue because I say that because people say, well, like, look at white supremacists. They can, they should be able to have their free right to say whatever they want. But yeah, that what they say also gets people killed. So I don't even know if that is it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I wish I could answer that because I don't think that's it because like, does, what does inclusion mean? Does it mean like every one of the neo-Nazis? Does it mean the Holocaust deniers? Like, should we be inclusive of their, their thoughts? You know, the people that think like imperialism and, and colonialism is acceptable, like should those thoughts also be included in that? Right. And I, and I think that's the struggle. Like, I, I don't, mm -hmm. I, I don't know where you, I don't want to say draw the line, but, but mm -hmm. I just don't know how big you make that scope. And I think that that is also part of the problem mm -hmm. because what you just brought up argument wise is what a lot of people bring up is, well, if we include this, Mm -hmm. then we have to include this. So it's better just to not include anything. But and I don't think that's the answer. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And, and do you, do you know that picture, the, the meme that's been going around for years about the, 
the two guys standing at opposite ends of a six or a nine yeah. and it says about, you know, well, it all depends on your point of view. The problem that I have with that is someone obviously laid that six or nine down mm-hmm. as a six or a nine. Mm-hmm. So while we may have our point of views, there's still got to be a point where it was intentionally something. Yeah. And I think we stop looking for what that intentional was because we just, we want things to be harmonious. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people are afraid to take those discussions and have those discussions about, because it began, like you said earlier, then it becomes a, I'm going to try and prove you wrong as opposed to this is why I think it's right. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing about it is that people just, I mean, forever, what was the three things you had talked about at the dinner table? Um, race, politics, and religion? Right. Or sex? Like, like, there was like three things that you never talked about. So you have to think about that for decades, it was beaten to people to not talk about these subjects. Then when you look in the Ronald Reagan era, it became this idea of colorblindness. We're all colorblind. We're, you know, even though the legislation we're going to do is disproportionately affect people, we're colorblind. So then people want to live by this colorblind idea. And so what you start to see is that a kid would be like, mom, look, that kid has darker skin. And the parent would be what? No, don't say anything. We're so sorry. No, we don't see color, Tommy. No, we don't see that. So now these things are really tough discussion points. People have been told not to talk about them, that you shouldn't talk about them, that you shouldn't see them. And so because of that, people don't know how to talk about it. So when you start talking about that these things, these laws are racial, people are literally, it's like a gun duel in the 1800s. People are waiting to be able to pull the you're racist card. It's like, well, you're racist. So now I've told you you're racist, so you can't call me a racist. And that's what people's goal is versus like saying, well, let's look at who it's looking at. And, and everyone wants to give intent behind it. Well, it wasn't malicious. There was no bad intent. I don't think they meant it bad. So because of that, it can't be X, Y, and Z. Versus, well, even though we understand that maybe there was no intent, this is still the outcome. I know you didn't intend to serve the ball in the net, but the outcome was the game was lost. Like, I'm not going to think that you intend not to know your blocking assignment, but this is what happened. And so we have to get away from this, well, it wasn't my intent, versus saying, well, this is the impact of it, and we have to move forward with the impact to change things. And because we have for decades not been pushed to not talk about stuff, now it's made people really tough to talk about in a very polarized time. So what I do is, like, we're going to talk about it. If you don't want to, I don't know what to tell you. But, like, we have to start getting more comfortable, and, but we, a lot of us don't know ourselves in order to be able to talk about this stuff. So if I don't even know where I got my biases from or that I have biases, I can't even talk about this stuff. And do you think you can have biases from uh, non-exposure? Oh, absolutely. Like, like for me growing up, we had, I think a total, all of school from, from kindergarten until my senior year of high school, we probably had three black kids in our entire district. You know what I mean? And it, it, it was, just because of the area that we live in and, you know, and what we're around, but because I wasn't exposed to that and thankfully that has changed and, and, you know, I'm so thankful for that. But because that, I guess it ends up feeding to the biases because I didn't know you, you don't know what you don't know. Right. 
But I think you're looking at exposure differently. You're looking at it as person to person, but you had a ton of exposure through music, through video. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. that's where we have to look at that exposure. And that's where I think um, a lot of people don't realize it's hitting you the hardest is the exposure of how are these characters in TV and videos being portrayed? Are black people only being portrayed as the thugs, as the first people being killed, you know, in the horror shows? Or, like, how are they being portrayed in movies and music? So that's how you're developing your biases. That in movies, all you're seeing is black people being the thug. Well, of course, that's what your biases are going to be. And you're going to want to lock your door when you do see one. If all you're seeing is Muslim people being thought of as terrorists, well, of course, that's how you're going to develop those biases. If you all your videos show women being housewives. So we, the exposure might have been to three black people in the school, but you had a ton of, and also who wasn't being shown. If you look at all those past 1950s and 60s shows, who wasn't being shown? A lot of black and brown people. So that's also how you have your biases of, well, if I haven't seen black and brown doctors, teachers, scientists, professors, well, then I just don't think that they exist. Or if they do, then there's just the, the exceptionalism rule that, that this person was exceptional, but everyone else, they're not. Wow. That's a big, that's a big nugget to swallow. Mm -hmm. That that's, you know, I, I don't know that I've really thought about it that deep of, of the, I don't know. I, I don't want to minimize it, but I would say peripheral exposure in the sense of the music movies, you know, people uh, just, working you know the people that you come across working um that, well that's also why i tell people like what type of books are you reading your kids or what type of movies if all you're showing your kids are of white people in the books or animals that can talk you're not showing them lgbt people with disabilities you know black and brown kids doing amazing things well then you're they're developing these biases and so i feel like as a white parent it's you have to be super intentional because it's really easy to go back on the status quo of just easy books. Oh, this is an easy book. Or this is an easy movie to pop in. But if you want to help change these biases, it, you have to be very intentional about what they're watching, what they're reading. You know, if they have, um, if your kids have black and brown friends, are you asking those parents, like, hey, anything special you feel I need to do to protect your kids? Because that's a part of having that critical thinking of knowing like, okay, well, you know, if a ball goes into the neighbor's yard, have, have your white son go get it. Like, don't tell my black kid, hey, just jump over the fence and go get this ball in the neighbor's yard. They'll be fine. Oh, that's not going to happen. So like, are, you have to critically think and be a little more intentful. Like, how can I protect your black and brown kid? What do I need to tell my kids so that they can have a, a deeper thought? No, it's not colorblindness. What do I need to do? What are the posters in my kids' rooms that they're, you know, putting up that I need to talk to them about? Uh, situations, you know, if it comes up, they're like, mommy, look at that kid has different colored skin. Are you saying, yeah, we all have different color skin? Because most likely what's going to happen is like, okay, can I have a Snickers? Like they don't, and parents are like, oh my God, what just happened? You know, sweating <laughs> profusely of like, just, they just, you know, did the matrix over a bullet versus the kid who just had a simple question. And we're thinking so in depth versus like everyone has different skin colors and let's go home and let's research it so they can get some more information. And so it's like stuff that parents can do to help stop the biases that they had as kids that they didn't even realize. And, and I think that brings up the good point of, you know, when you said about the parents and asking, you know, 
the other parents, what can you do to protect your child and, and, you know, educate them. I think people aren't doing that because they think it's the right thing to do. And it goes back mm -hmm. to that era of colorblindness. Yeah. If I ask them, then it means that I'm thinking about it. And if I'm thinking mm -hmm. about it, it must be bad. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's just this cycle and, uh, man, you have filled me again with so much knowledge and I, I hope people take away a ton of it. Um, do you want to pump all your social media and, and what you got going on where people can find you and learn more and yeah. all that good stuff? Um, literally, if you just type in Gen Fried Talks on anything, you will be able to find me. All social media is just Gen Fried Talks. Um, my website is genfriedtalks.com. Um, I actually have a webinar coming up on Sunday, the 24th, called Whiteness in Athletics, where my friend Victoria uh, Ferris, she's a white, white woman, we're going to talk about whiteness in athletics. And so um, I think we're gonna have some great conversation. She's also an educator disruptor. So, you know that, but really just follow me on social media. If you have any questions, shoot me a message. My email is genfrytalks at gmail.com. Literally genfrytalks on anything, you will be able to hunt me down. I always welcome discussion or like, hey, can you, know, can you chat with me about this? Um, on my website, I have a resources page that I try and update semi-regularly that has so many resources, books, articles, videos. I mean, about so much stuff that you could spend years going through it all. And so I just try and have that resource page because I know it's hard to know what to read or where to find it. And I just kind of made this page that you can find everything. Awesome. And I don't know, I think it's a Northeast thing, but that's Jen with a single N. Oh, we really? We tend to add... And fry with no e. We tend to no add, e. We oh, tend no to e. add. We tend to add an extra n and add an e. So it's just Jen Fry, single n, no e. Yeah, J E N F R Y talks at dot com or on any social media. Well, Jen, thank you again, and this was a, beyond what I expected in in the nuggets, and I'm sure we're gonna have to have a part two, and we'll yes. continue these discussions. But I, I really do appreciate it, and. From a personal note, I just want to thank you again for always making me think about the tough stuff and not getting comfortable with where I'm at and, and disrupting what I'm doing. I love it, and I, I love getting uncomfortable because of you. I appreciate you. so. Thank you so much, Dan. All right. Again, thanks, everyone, tuning into the Mental Cast. I'm Dan Mickle, our guest, Jen Fry of jenfrytalks.com, and we'll see you on future episodes. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Mental Cast, powered by Soul Performance Academy and hosted by Dan Mickle. You can always reach the show on all social media platforms at the username at RealDanMickle or via the show's website at danmickle.com. Don't forget to check out our title sponsor, Soul Performance Academy, at the username at 717soul and on their website, 717soul.com. We hope you can join us for our next episode. Thank mm -hmm. you.